What are we talking about? We are talking about changes that occur in the course of partner relationships. Yes. Because last time we talked about how partner relationships begin. How we wish partner relationships would begin. (laughs) That's an important (laughs) distinction. How we wish partnership relationships would begin. And next time we will talk about how partnerships end. Yes. So today is the middle. Today is... Changes. What happened? How do changes occur during the course of the partnership? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's inevitable. Yes. I think. And that's not to say they're all bad. Like, I think there's there's many positive evolutions. And then there's also friction that can come up because of those changes. I want to talk about both parts today. I want you to talk about both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because you see this a lot more than I do. Yeah. On the legal side... I don't really see a lot of mid-course change. Um, And when I do, the kinds of legal, like legal work that has to come from that is pretty administrative and straightforward. Yeah. Well, because I think it's, it's mostly, mostly when we're talking about partnership changes, at least when the, when the intention is that the business keeps, stays as as a going concern and we're not talking about divorce, Mm -hmm. uh, which we'll circle back to. It's mostly governance questions and structural changes that don't necessarily have legal ramifications. And they can, and we'll talk about that too, because it can result in changes of equity or division of ownership. But I think most of it is actually just approach to the structure of the business and roles and how do you accommodate skill sets, changes of interest, lifestyle changes, blah, 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 blah. So... All right, so you want to jump into that and talk? Yeah, let's jump in. First of all, what are you drinking? I am still working on my Four Roses single barrel. The the house well, if you will. The house well and a big jug of water. So, you know, what about you? I have... um, 1792, that bourbon. Oh, yeah. Cool. Karina picked it up on sale, which is, which is the theme of how <laughs> right. we rotate our way through the liquor store. Right. Um, but I'm also drinking ginger tea because it's fall. Too, too fisted. Well, cheers, John. Thanks, Kate. Cheers to you, too. All right. So what are common circumstances where the partners either want or need to, um, you know, change the course of their relationship. The real common ones are, or at least the, the real common ones that are externally driven, let's say like outside of the business, are family stuff. People have kids. And this isn't a gendered thing. Like I see all, all flavors of humans with children have that impact their their availability, their interest, their bandwidth, their desire to work 80 hours a week or not, like those kinds of things, that all changes. So that's a big one. I think there's just other life changes too around interests, motivation, engagement. And we kind of talked about this with closure. Like people can become, in our first episode on closures, because 
you have to be engaged or what's the point? And so, you know, in a solo business, the owner becoming disengaged is a whole thing. But in a partnership, it actually like that can be an asymmetrical occurrence. And I would say and sometimes that's better if it's an asymmetrical occurrence, because one of the benefits of partnerships is that you have more flexibility for exits and changes of engagement and things like that. Whereas if you're a solo person, it's just you. <laughs> like there's no other shared ownership or power, things like that. So there's those kinds of, you know, external things. Um, I think that there's one about money that comes up that I see where, and, and this is worth saying that there can be often a bit of a tax of around compensation when you're in a partnership in a small business, which is that you might very well make more money if you were the only owner. And that just has to do with the constraints of size and, you know, revenue and margins, which is that like, you know, if you're in the million dollar plus minus range or something like that, $2 million, there's only so much you can allocate to compensation, period. Mm-hmm. And so if you have two folks that, especially in businesses that are more uh, like high skills, service-based kind of things like this, that will constrain the proportion of job-based compensation that a partner can make if there's two of you, because you're going to, there's going to be a little bit of a dividing it up. Whereas if you were solo, you might make more money. Even though, even though together the revenue is, is higher. It might be. Yeah. Well, higher than if it was just one person generating it. True. But I mean, even with a team, like, especially once you've got to sort of, you know, like when you're at a million and up, you generally will have more employees than just the two partners, say. Yeah. I mean, you could have a triplicate partnership triad and have a million dollar business. Like that certainly, that structure exists. And you're going to have solo businesses at that size. Like Mm -hmm. this isn't, I'm making some generalizations, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I think often there is some there's some constraint that I see in terms of building out financial models with people of kind of what you can expect to make. And then sometimes there are businesses that don't quite get to the level of compensation and revenue and all of that that a partner would like. And this can be, again, the life changes thing where you have a kid, maybe you're like, oh shit, this is expensive. <laughs> and I'm kind of under earning in this business and I don't want to put up with that anymore. I can't Mm -hmm. like I got daycare to pay for. Um, So that can be something that happens where maybe there's one partner who's just gets is a little like, wait a second. If I went and got a job, I would make more money. Why am I doing this anymore? Um, So that's one. And then I think the, the, the last one and this one's, often where a lot of stickiness comes up that I see, which is that, and I touched on this in our last conversation, which is that, you know, I I always assume change in a partnership because as your business evolves, you're going to have to evolve in your skills, what you learn, your leadership, all those things. Like hopefully you have some kind of growth mindset and are able to show up for that. But not all people do. And often you can, after you've been going on for a while, get to a point where there is a real asymmetry of goals 
and goals, skills, leadership capabilities, and that can create an perceived or real asymmetry and contribution. Mm. And ultimately, that creates a lot of wonkiness. And it doesn't always have to, but I think, you know, if one one person really rises to a level of leadership and the other person can't get there, maybe are left behind or, you know, that can create some real friction around what might need to shift around roles and compensation and all sorts of things. Right. Do you see, are there other... I think that's kind of like the underlying, um, like the underlying feeling behind all of these things is that whatever the triggering event is, um, it, it creates this inequity, this feeling of inequity that underlies the whole thing, right? Yep. Whether yep. that's, hey, you're spending more time with your kids and not the business, or I'm more into this than you and it's not balancing itself out over time because we're all going to flow a little bit or the need for, or the need for money even but if that's the thing okay so then what happens though right so the partners have one one or both of them are having this feeling that things are not right like or wonky as you say what what do you do about the wonkiness well i think some of that depends on whether it's co-recognized wonkiness mm. right mm. To preview the divorce conversation, I feel like sometimes what leads to divorce is that one partner has a clear perspective and opinion that the other person is not pulling their weight, and that person doesn't think so. And then I, I think that, like, if we're going to make a flow chart here, you know, you're standing at, like, wonkiness. Do both, do both partners agree <laughs> that there is wonkiness? Yeah. Yes, let's let's go into this conversation. No, mm, maybe you need to talk to a lawyer. Yeah, is that is that about right? I think that's right because if if both partners don't agree that there's wonkiness, I don't. I think you're not in change mode. You're in dissolution mode or you know separation mode. And that can be a bummer because I think I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like often often that partner that either pretends they're not aware or is definitely not aware tends to dig in their heels and become the resident asshole and the person that's really like going to the mat hard about whatever that dissolution looks like so that's like maybe that maybe that's a like pick your partners and their level of self-awareness wisely type situation yeah and and communicate about it along the way so that yeah. there isn't one person who really doesn't see it that way that's hard though right. but yes yeah but back to the the agreed upon co-agreed upon wonkiness yeah which yeah. is really what we're talking about yes. which is like yes two folks know that something's off they can feel it they might not agree about what's off or how to solve it because that's a whole different thing but at least there's some acknowledgement that something needs to change mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, you know, I wanted to talk about today because we're going to talk about the other path, which is when our resident legal guru, John, steps in. You can't see it, but I am rolling my eyes right now. Um, so here's the two places where I really see folks get the most stuck. And the first one is this very common thing where... They haven't had a very clear distinction between ownership 
and work and job in the business. And this happens all the time because they do get a little bit fuzzy of what what is ownership work? What is my job? What is my ownership compensation? What is my job compensation? And a lot of folks will blur those or just, you know, not make a hard distinction. But I think that getting clear on that is often one of the keys to sorting this out. And I'll kind of circle back to what that looks like because it has to do with compensation and roles and how do you sort the money stuff out. And then the other place, if if there does need to be some kind of shift in ownership percentages or equity, what's the business actually worth is the other place where people get really... Uh, it's their third one. I mean, I think roles roles just in terms of um like authority but that's yeah. that's lesser than the i mean than the other two it's 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 money like if we take a situation where one partner wants to have a smaller role in the business i think this one's actually easier to figure out so say like you and i have our business together john and I decide I want to spend, you know, I only want to be working the business half time because I got other stuff that I want to do. So if we've been clear about our compensation, like you have a clear salary, I have a clear salary, probably they're equal because they should be. Um, then we just start paying me differently. Like I, I work half time in the business, I get half of a salary. You can either do it role specific. So like, for instance, and I have, uh, I have a client that did it this way, where one of the partners stepped back and was just really tightly focused on sales and biz dev. Like that was, that was the only thing that they were going to do in the business moving forward for now. And so they could kind of independently figure out what would we hire this out for? And do, should we have a, you know, um, should they have a commission structure, things like that? So that was pretty clear, at least in terms of compensation for job. They both had equal salaries before this all happened. They actually raising the person that was staying salary because they really were taking the helm more as like a CEO type role and needed to be more appropriately com uh, compensated for that. So they're able to shift it. So that part, I think, is really clear. All right. Yeah, my question on that is clear, maybe, but how easy or what was the process like for actually getting to that clear answer? Yeah, I think it had a lot of friction because there were a lot of conversations about the ownership part. And, you know, not to get too far ahead, but so contradictory thought here which is that you and I talked about this in our kind of notes preparing, which is that equity is both not really about ongoing contribution. It's about the risk that you came into the business with. Like that's how it gets set, right? Mm -hmm. And risk can look like effort or money or whatever. So it's both like not about your ongoing contribution because you set it when you started based on risk. But it's also, this is the contradictory piece, it's also something you build over time. 
And so it is actually connected to your ongoing contributions at the same time. And I think this is why it's tricky. Because if you do shift your compensation effort level of job involvement, you know, your your job, somebody's part-time, at a certain point, John, you might look at me and be like, wait, why are you getting 50% of the profits? I'm carrying your ass here. That's exactly what I was going to say. I resent yeah. you for this. <laughs> I, that's not right. Or if we're an enterprise and we're going to sell the company, like, why am I building that value to go into your pocket? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. And then my argument, at least from what my experience of working with folks on this, my argument is like, well, I put all this work in. Like, I've been here all along. So I think the contradiction is that the person that is more involved in contributing more ongoing is generally going to be like, well, this is about ongoing contribution and what you're putting into it. Whereas me, the person that wants to step back and hold on to the value is like, well, no, this is about all the work I've done to get us here. And those two things are both true. Mm -hmm which is, I think, where we get a lot of conflict around how to handle that part. Yeah, I mean, I think the salary thing, there can be a lot of friction if folks aren't clear on what their salary philosophy are and don't have a clear structure for it. So, like, if they have a structure that's transparent and clear for how they decide on compensation for the whole team, like for employees, for principals, owners, anybody then I think it's a little bit easier because it's a bit more objective. And then you're not arguing over, you know, dollar amounts and stuff like that because there's already a sort of philosophy of how you handle those decisions. So, you know, you could go back to that step and clarify it first. But if you don't have that, then I think it can be a little bit of a, like, scramble of, of uh, competing priorities. I don't know if this is relevant, but I like I'm thinking of a situation recently where one of the partners stepped out of the business like pretty much fully. And it wasn't for a bad reason, but they they left. I think it, it was because they moved and the business was really like geographically based. So they couldn't be involved anymore. But that person wanted to maintain their 50% equity stake in the company. And they wanted the person who was continuing the business, they were willing to say, I, since I'm not working, I'm not going to take a salary, but they didn't want the person who was continuing the business to raise their salary, even though that person was now doing 100% of the work. That seems unfair. <laughs> well, that was my impression as well. How did, did they resolve this yet? We are still negotiating to yeah. figure it out. That's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. But, you know, I mean, it's 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 at the point where the continuing partner has come to the conclusion that if I can't get it to be better for me, I'm just going to not do it at all and we'll, we'll dissolve the business. Now we're on the divorce path. And again. we lead to the divorce path. Going back to your yeah. point, though, because there was not an agreement on the wonkiness. So I've worked with folks that have been on, like, seemed to be on that divorce path where I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this isn't going to go well. You all, you all aren't going to make it. And I think what ultimately, I'm sure there's lots of reasons why folks step 
off that path and step back onto the like, let's figure this out together and collaborate path. But a lot of it has to do with actually putting the business first and saying like, our, you know, our clients are important, our community is important, our team is impo- more important than our individual gain or loss from this thing. So I, th- I think there's that. And then there's also, I think a lot of folks just, they value their relationship more highly than going down a breakup path, which generally means that their relationship will fracture too. I do see people walk back from that. It takes a lot of courage and sort of reorientation around, you know, letting go sometimes of that, like, we need to make this equal and fair and haggling over that mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. and kind of reorienting over, like, well, what is our actual priority here? The example that I gave, that is a factor because the continuing partner is is very much focused on maintaining the business for their customers, really committed to it. What will they do if we don't do this, right? And yeah. so he's hanging on to try to make it work maybe longer than he should or that's fair um, because of that reason. Yeah, interesting. I also think now that we're chatting about it, like that example's a really good one about partners focusing on their equity either as being the upfront or the ongoing thing, right? I mean, that's like black and white there. The guy who's leaving, you know, he's like, I keep my 50 because of, as you say, the risk I took up front and getting it to this point. The yeah. other guy's like, yeah, but I'm building all the value going forward. Which is also, I think, to segue into my my point of, uh, so there, there's that problem yeah. of uh, that contradiction between what is equity actually about. Mm-hmm. But then there's also an issue that I've seen where there isn't enough value in the business as an asset. And so there might be two partners and they come to a really good agreement around the shift. Like there is going to be some kind of shift in equity, which means that there has to be some kind of buyout of that value. And then I've seen a real disagreement and and folks get stuck because the person leaving, like what what do you value the business as? Especially if it's a service business, it's not worth what the person walking away wishes it were. Mm -hmm. People don't like to hear this, but all of that labor and blood, sweat and tears isn't actually worth anything. It's a factor in building the asset, but it doesn't equal the assets value like we can put all of this work into it and if it's not profitable if there's not cash in the business if there's not asset that you can really clearly point to in the business then all that labor actually isn't really worth much of anything right in a service business if it's not continuing then it it has no ongoing value and this can happen in you know product-based businesses too, where all of the value is invested in inventory or equipment or something like that. Those aren't fungible. They're not, you know, there's not, there's not something you can pull out of your machinery. And so that you can also get stuck there because on paper, the business might look like it has a lot of value, but it's not value that can be translated into cash or payouts. Mm-hmm. And in that case, in like those types of businesses tend to be lower margin anyway, like if you're in manufacturing or restaurant or something like that. Um, 
food-based businesses, say, they're going to have a different kind of margin generally than high-touch service businesses or uh, you know expertise-based businesses. And so there's also a catch-22 that happens there for a different reason, which is almost the opposite problem where there is a lot of value on paper. It just doesn't actually translate to anything fungible that can turn into... Yeah, you can't do a payout from there. No, yeah. you can't do a payout. So, you know, I see people get stuck there where it's like, they realize that if they actually did any kind of buyout or payout, that it would completely tank the business. And so then they're like, well, wait a second. And I've, I've seen this happen too, where the partner in bad faith has kind of held the business hostage and has almost tanked the business because they're hell-bent on getting the payout, which, that, again, that's a divorce issue probably, but... Well, I mean, you're bringing it up because if there's a change in equity, you're you're saying that there might be a payout to equal up, get that done. Yeah, but people have to be careful about that because they need to make sure the business can sustain it. Are there any client examples or just hypotheticals in your mind about how this equity conundrum gets resolved? Well, John. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is this is your uh, this is where I get to talk about this theoretical idea I have that I keep trying to pitch at you. Go for it. <laughs> pitch it to the world. So, in cooperatives, worker-owned co-ops, they handle issues of profit and distribute allocation of losses and profit a little bit differently than a vanilla partnership like we've been talking about. And there's nothing particular to a co-op structure. I can do that episode a different day, but um, there's something particular about co-ops that they only get to have this mechanism I'm talking about. Like, it exists for any kind of business, really. It's just that co-ops use it in a different way, and which is that they have what are called internal capital accounts, which are balance sheet accounts, like their their type of equity account. And... You know, we have a worker-owned cop together. At the end of the year, we have $50,000 in profit, and we get to decide what we want to do with that. So maybe, you know, $20,000 of that we want to retain in the business. So we're not going to allocate that to either of us. We're going to retain that. We, you know, we want to make some investments next year. We want to keep our rainy day fund. So we retain that. The other 30000 we distribute between the two of us. So we each get fifteen k of that, and it goes into our capital accounts. And maybe we decide we want to pay out five k of that right now. So we do. And we want to keep the other 10 in the business, but we want to allocate it to both of us as value that we own. That is, you know, part of our build-up equity. And this, you know, you could do this, I think, in a regular LLC. It's just not really how it works. But because co-ops are built for entries and exits, like they're built for to outlast the original founders when they're set up well. So we kind of assume like if you and I start it with another person that we're going to leave at some point, but other people are also going to start working and become owners. So they're going to buy in. They'll get their own capital accounts. And then you and I might decide to move on and leave. And so rather than doing a whole valuation game every time that happens, we just say, oh, okay, 
you know, you've been here five years, there's $75,000 in your capital account, that's the value you get to walk away with. And it doesn't mean it's paid out all at once, because the business may or may not be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Because the business is going to use that money or capital in some fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, So we might come up with a payment plan and payout schedule. But it's really, it's based on value that's been stored in business over time. And is generally really connected to our contributions. And so people do that and they calculate that in different ways. That's very, that's something that you can make decisions about what system you want to use. Um, But it's very clear cut. Like you can't really negotiate about it because it's actually just an accounting problem that happens at the end of every year. So this is my like kind of theoretical proposal for LLCs Mm -hmm. or you know, corporations could do this too, but with regular partnerships that aren't work-owned, um, is that you could use capital accounts to store your equity and your the value that you build up over time. And then if you want to leave or shift things, it becomes, you know, you, you can't really argue about it at that point. And there are drawbacks, which I feel like you should talk about. You could build that into any agreement. I mean, yeah. the, the worker co-ops that we do really are LLCs that just have these features yeah. built into them and yes. and their own kind of, you know, governance features that are different than you see in, you know, traditional company. Yeah. Well, you know, with all this stuff, you know, we there there is always a question whether when you're when you're talking about extracting value from the company, let's let's say it's on in this context or at the end, if somebody's leaving, you know, the question is, what are you going to use as the value to? compute their percentage. And there are a lot of different ways to do it. You're suggesting a different way to do it. Yes. And I guess the thing that's, you know, that's jumps out in my mind that's different than what is typically in in, you know, an operating agreement is, you know, that number doesn't necessarily have anything to do with fair market value of the business. Correct. That's the part that the business owners could get yes. get get bent out of shape. Well, and here's why, because it requires a fundamental shift in paradigm from treating your business as an asset to extract wealth from to an ongoing concern that cares for the community. Is it? You know, it's a paradigm shift. And because you're in a solidarity economy, not a extractive or capitalist economy when you're doing that, which is why I like it, obviously, because that's that's my jam. Yeah. But I also, you know, even apart from that, um, I mean, it saves money, it saves time, it saves arguments. And I'm not sure, you know, maybe you would, I don't know if you'd get paid out more or less. Like, you don't know. You don't know. Let's make the assumption that it's less, though. Right? Let's yep. make the assumption that that the accumulated net cash flow that you're putting in these capital accounts are less than what you would appraise the business for if you did a fair market value calculation because there's no multiples in the in the other context. Correct. Right? Yep. So the business owners would have to decide to do that. And, and of course, if people buy into it, then they buy into it. But like, I'm just wondering if that would create an issue. I think it does if, you know, again, it, it requires that paradigm shift. Yeah. Of like, what is the point of this for you? Yeah. And... And if, if the point really is that you want to be able to extract 
maximum value from it, then yeah, you're not going to agree to that. You're not. Because you actually might walk away with more in a capital account. You don't know. But because you could build up that value and then the business could be having a bad year or go through some tumultuous times. It's not that you're your capital account doesn't diminish in value because the business is having a bad year. Mm-hmm. But your valuation mm-hmm. can change mm-hmm. based on that year. So there's a risk profile there too of yeah. you know orientation. But yeah, I mean I'm I'm talking about a sort of fundamental shift in orientation around how you think about the purpose and what you get to walk away with and how that works. I like it. Do we ha- do we have any clients we can Use this test this on. For this. No, but maybe we should put that out there. We do. We need to. If you're listening and you would like to be a guinea pig, <laughs> John and I will work with you about. This. Yeah, I bet there would be some. It would be people who want to sort of think about their business as, as like in this worker owned cooperative model, even if yeah. it's not. You know, most of the folks that I work with, they're not starting up their businesses to exit to great wealth. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're not they're not trying to, like, juice profit and scale. And, mm-hmm. um, that's not or I would say that's not the primary purpose. And so I think if that's not your primary purpose, then. And, and you want to also consider from the outset that you might somebody might want to leave or change their situation at some point and build for that this is a pretty elegant way to do that mm-hmm. that avoids a whole lot of kind of potentially gnarly negotiations in the future i don't know i think it's a little bit of a safeguard for some of the ways that these kinds of conversations and changes can really create massive amounts of friction and disagreement mm-hmm. so in in the in real life you know when when we're dealing with this you know you have experiences where the partners have said okay you know we're going to agree on a change of comp because that makes sense yeah and i guess also that we're going to agree on a change in equity and i should say sometimes those two things go together and sometimes they don't and that really just depends on I think a lot of the stuff we just talked about. So is there, is it possible to do a payout Mm -hmm. in the business? Like, will that happen, be functional and not sink the business? Mm -hmm. And also, I just, I think the orientation of the partners around these issues we're talking about is what is equity about? Will somebody become super resentful if they have a partner that's working less as the job, but still having 50 50 yeah i've seen that too it could take you pull on each of these things in different ways and that's about i think values and what you care about and your your orientations around fairness and things like that uh which are different depending (laughs) on who you are so then we do that does it work or are we or once we start down that road are we like going to be revisiting this between the two like yeah, that's a good question. I th- I think usually there is revisiting. Like I do think that that kind of can tip you into an uh, an ever evolving conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm. That's why I ask because it just seems like you're starting something that's going to continue. It's not a one one time fix, which is fine. Like I I actually don't hate that yeah. because 
I think even if that's a, you know, station on the eventual road to a divorce or somebody fully exiting, I think that's actually fine. It can be a more gentle path, um, which can be helpful for the business. Like it's not so disruptive because uh, one person truly exiting is super disruptive usually. Um, so it can also kind of cushion that period of upheaval after there is a real change. So I don't hate that mm. as long as the folks are, as long as the partners aren't in a sort of like, okay, fine, we'll do this <laughs> sort of the attitude where they, they have enthusiastically agreed this is the best course rather than somebody capitulating because they don't want to deal with it. Mm. And then that, then you're sort you know. There are, there are situations, I think, where it's you're just pushing the hard stuff down the road a bit, and maybe that's not such a good idea. But if this is a like strategically functional choice that makes sense for the whole and the partners and you're all in agreement about it, I actually kind of like that sort of slow fade and continuous resolve. But you have to have good, you know, if you're if you're not communicating well, then I would say don't do this. It's only a good pathway if you're still in positive communication with each other. And they have you to guide them along. I guess so. Well, thanks, John. Good to see you. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Fridays. John and I will be back next time with part three on our series on partnerships to talk about divorces and breakups. It's sure to be juicy. Whiskey Fridays is a collaboration between myself, Kate Tyson, you can find me at wanderwellconsulting.com, and my friend and colleague, John Gerber, who you can find at unlawyer.com. If this episode resonated with you in any way, we'd love for you to share it with a friend. And if you have any whiskey recommendations, please send them our way. Talk to you next time.